G'day, mate. Forty here. I was watching this wildly entertaining discussion the other day between the left-wing comic Jimmy Dore, comes from a working-class background, and Tucker Carlson, who definitely does not come from a working-class background, comes from an upper-class background, but they agree on so much, even though they are on the right and the left. But what unites them is a shared commitment to populism. And so I was watching this wildly entertaining, though frequently fact-free show, and I was thinking, why is populism so popular and yet so ineffective? As opposed to, say, something like neoconservatism, which has no popular following, right? Has, has no real constituency, and, and yet just gets so much done. Has no... Right? So why is one way of thinking and one way of organizing in politics so popular and yet ineffective and another way of organizing completely lacking in popularity but is still highly effective and so I thought oh, I should do a show on this and uh, let me let me start off with the blog post and try to figure this out so people on the inside all right the elites the insiders they are really populous uh, experts, all right, usually want uh, the people to defer to their expertise. They are rarely populist. Institutions, all right, are, are rarely populist. What are the major populist institutions? I can't think of any. What, what are the major populist think tanks? I can't think of a single one. Uh, which billionaires are populist, right? I, I can't think of many or, or any billionaires who, who are populist. And so without the support of insiders, without the support of experts, without the support of institutions, and without the support of billionaires, it's really hard to get things done, even if you enjoy popular support. So the Arab Spring 2011, that's a popular uprising, but finished with few accomplishments because it had few Arab elites on its side. So elites can't rule against a united populace, all right? Elites don't like populism because Populism says wisdom resides with the people. Elites believe that uh, wisdom resides with, if not the elites, then those with expertise. So for elites to rule, they need to cut deals with parts of a nation. And a united nation all right, is not going to be easy to cut deals with. So the more divided the nation, the more effective the elites are with ruling that nation. So the Democratic Party in the United States, for example, it operates by cutting deals with the top of society, the elite, and the bottom of society, basically against the middle. So I was thinking about these lofty issues while watching a wildly entertaining conversation between Tucker Carlson and Jimmy Dore. It's on the right. The right. But, I mean, Nikki Haley's donors, but they're also Chuck Schumer's donors. And those people are all cool with that, that our government— using our money in our name would murder a guy because he dared to embarrass them by uncovering actual crimes that they committed. And everyone knows this and no one has a problem with it. And none of that is speculation. It's all been proven. And Mike Pompeo was confronted. All right, talking about Mike Pompeo, talking about assassinating Julian Assange. Confronted with the fact that he discussed at CIA as its director murdering Julian Assange. And his response was, Anybody who leaked that information is guilty of a crime because you violated our classification laws. Really? What about the guy who is discussing on public property as a public official murdering somebody using 
federal funds. That's not a crime? Are you freaking kidding? Like, this is, it's too crazy for me. I can't deal with it. So once I started to learn more about that, I was like, I don't, I'm just going over there. And I, I love his wife. His Stella is a wonder, as I know, I'm sure you know her, but just really a, a smart and humane and just decent good. I guess, does Julian Assange have a wife? Is that who he's talking about? Person. And it just bothered me so much that I literally just, and I didn't have a job. I was like, okay, I'm not doing anything. So it takes five hours to get there. I just flew over and went to see him. And it was worse than I imagined. And, you know, they did the same, the same playbook they did to Julian Assange. They did to Russell Brand, right? So as soon as you start to tell the truth. Oh, of course. Oh, I know. So they made, they called him a rapist. They said Julian Assange was a rapist. Okay, so the investigation into Russell Brand began, you know, years before it finally went public, right? It wasn't some top-down operation by elites trying to squelch a populist voice. That's the first thing they did. And, of course, it took years for that to go away. But now, you know, the lie has power. And so people still think of him as a rapist or a creep or something like that. And uh, it, right. it, and then they did it. You see him do it to Russell Brand. As soon as Russell Brand reached 6 million subscribers on YouTube and was telling the truth about everything, just like you are, uh, they went after him with that same thing. By the way, the stuff that— the, the idea that Tucker Carlson and Russell Brand are just telling the truth about everything, I mean, come on. I mean— no matter how much you like Tucker and how much you like Russell Brand, that's a completely ludicrous assertion. It was not new. Uh, it, was, it, people, it wasn't women who came to the police complaining about him or even came to the newspapers complaining about him. It was the newspapers who went and had to fight. They talked to every person in his past and tried to get them to say stuff about him. And then they wrote a sensational hit piece, which is what it was, sensational. And abs- they, they tracked down women who seemed to have some legitimate complaints about Russell Brand, whether or not he's committed a crime, right? No, no criminal charges have been filed against Russell Brand, but he's a public figure who is very public about some of his out-there behavior. And this investigation, uh, Channel 4 documentary in Times of London investigation, just uh, added more details to a story that Russell Brand has, has told on many occasions. Absolutely no charges filed against <laughs> Russell Brand. Here. There's not, not nothing. I know. And, it's, and, every, and so somehow immediately YouTube goes, well, we have to take his, fun, his funding away. And so that's what YouTube did. They tried to take it. They did. They took his advertising away, although I'm sure they still run ads on it, but they just don't give any money to him. Um, yeah, businesses don't like to place ads against public figures who are accused in a credible fashion by multiple women of committing some, you know, heinous sexual crimes such as rape. So I don't think this is some mysterious uh, top-down elite conspiracy against truth-tellers, all right? This was an understandable reaction by a business, YouTube, that wants to make money, recognizes that advertisers don't want to run advertising against someone who's credibly charged with committing rape. But, but you know, I, I went to go see Russell, too, who I, I love and know pretty well, um, on that same trip, because I wanted to see how he was doing. And I was reminded that, by the way, none of the women, the women, assuming they exist, who accused him were named. So media organizations hear an allegation of a crime, but they only name the accused, but not the accuser. So it's like, they're, which is totally wrong. I mean, it's completely immoral. You know, you've been accused of robbing a bank. Which bank, you ask? I'm not going to tell you, but you're a bank robber. I mean, it's like, but by the way, this is the playbook. I, I read this today. I was, I'm writing a piece about Julian Assange and I, so in 2017, his real sin was embarrassing the CIA by revealing the existence of the surveillance program that surveilled a bunch of foreign heads of state, et cetera, et cetera. And Assange, by the way, withheld a lot of the information because he asked the CIA, look, I don't want to get anybody killed. So here's what I'm about to, I'm about to 
put on my on WikiLeaks. Tell me if any of it is too far. They wouldn't respond. Anyway, but the CIA found the guy they believed leaked that information to WikiLeaks, and they charged him with that crime, you know, imperiling American national security. A jury did not convict him of that. But guess what happened next? He got busted for kitty porn. Can you believe it? The guy who offended the CIA turned out to be like a huge kitty porn guy. They found it all in his computer, amazingly. And he's in prison now, and he'll be there for the rest of his life. There is an, a remarkable connection between an over, there's an overlap between the following sets. People who love kitty porn and people who offend the regime. Have you ever noticed that? It's, 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 it's amazing. And it's enough almost to keep me off the internet at this point, because I mean, they're not going to get me on, you know, I've been married to the same girl for 30 years. I don't drink. So like, I don't know how they're going to get me. It's not going to be on that stuff. So I'm just not going to my computer. That way they can never say I'm a kitty porn guy. Well, they could definitely get me on that stuff. Um, okay, look, this is wildly entertaining. I mean, that's 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 funny, and there, there may be there may be something to it. I mean, Scott Ritter convicted right of child pornography, anti-regime guy. So, I think this is an excellent example of, of populist discourse, and also an excellent example of why populists don't seem to get anything done. Because while they're incredibly entertaining and it feels good to to listen to them, uh, they they just don't seem that that effective. So I put populism into Google. All right, I want to be very precise here. First result I think came from Oxford uh, Dictionary: political approach that strives to appeal to ordinary people who feel that their concerns are disregarded by the elites. And according to Wikipedia, populism is a range of political stances that emphasize the idea of the people and often juxtapose this group with the elite. It is associated with anti-establishment and anti-political sentiment, a term developed in the late 19th century, is being applied to various politicians, parties, and movements since that time, often as a pejorative. So one approach to populism is the ideational approach. This defines populism as an ideology that presents the people as a morally good force and contrasts them against the elite who are portrayed as corrupt and self-serving. Now, I am not populist, but I'm not anti-populist. I'm not uh, pro-elite or anti-elite. I, I recognize that sometimes the populists are right, sometimes the elites are right, sometimes the establishment is right, and sometimes establishment critics are right. I don't side with elites, populists, any one, uh, one group. Right? Populists differ in how the people are defined, but it's frequently done along class, ethnic, and national lines. The elite tend to be portrayed as corrupt and self-serving. So I don't think that the elite are any more likely to be corrupt and self-serving than the ordinary person. I don't think plumbers are more or less likely to be corrupt and self-serving than rabbis, than priests, than billionaires, than uh, people who run hedge funds or multimedia companies. Populists present the elite as comprising the political, economic, cultural, and media establishment, often depicted as a homogeneous entity, which is not true. Usually, right? The elite are not usually a homogeneous entity. They are frequently divided amongst themselves. And uh, Donald Trump was able to recruit some elites to his side, which is how he was able to get some things done in office, right? And elites are accused of placing their own interests in the interests of other groups, such as large corporations, foreign countries, or immigrants above the interests of the people. Well, sometimes some elites do this, and uh, often. We're all tend towards being highly self-serving, whether we are paralegals, whether we are landscapers, whether we are insurance brokers, right? Whatever our position in society, right? We all tend to be self-serving. So another 
approach, populism is associated with many different ideologies such as nationalism, liberalism, or socialism. So populists can be nationalists, populists can be liberals, populists can be socialists. But the further left you go, all right, then the more anti-populist and the more you get belief in rule by experts. So communism is essentially belief in rule by experts. We'll get the five-year economic plan. We'll have this top-down economic planning, all right? So more left you go, the more you believe in rule by experts. The further right you go, the more you believe in hierarchy, all right? So you believe that uh, the different, there are different groups with different gifts, different roles to play in society, so that there's some, something of a, a commonality between going to the farther right and the farther left. The, the more you believe in either rule by experts on the left or you believe in a society dominated by hierarchy. So populists can be located around the right-left political spectrum. So there's left-wing populism, right-wing populism. So in popular discourse, in the news media, populism is usually used pejoratively. It's used synonymously often with demagogy to describe politicians who present simplistic answers to complex questions in a highly emotional manner. It is associated with political opportunism. So politicians who seek to please voters without uh, higher rational consideration as the best course of action, they're frequently demeaned as populists. And populism is essentially a revolt against the way society is being run at the moment. And uh, here's a good little consensus establishment perspective on populism coming from TED. Populism asks the right questions does not provide a ready-made set of answers. That's Christopher Lash. In the mid-1970s, after decades of political turmoil, Greece finally seemed to be on the path to stability. With the introduction of a new constitution and negotiations underway to enter European institutions, many analysts expected Greek politics to follow the pattern of the larger Western world. Then, in 1981, a political party called PASOK came to power. Its charismatic leader, Andreas Papandreou, railed against the new constitution and accused those in power of national betrayal. All right, so this is a form of populism coming from the left. Opposing Greece's membership in NATO and the European Economic Community, Papandreou promised to govern for the betterment of the common people above all else. He famously declared, there are no institutions, only the people exist. Papandreou's rise to power isn't a unique story. In many democratic countries around the world, charismatic leaders vilify political opponents, disparage institutions, and claim the mantle of the people. Some critics label this approach as authoritarian or fascist, and many argue that these leaders are using emotions to manipulate and deceive voters. But whether or not this style of politics is ethical, it's certainly democratic and it goes by the name of populism. The term populism has been around since ancient Rome. and has So we, we hear a lot about we're losing our democracy, and one of the ways that we're often told that we're losing our democracy is through populism, which seems bizarre. Like, how could a movement that represents the popular will of the majority of the people be anti-democratic? But that is a common part of elite discourse and mainstream media discourse, and there's an excellent book about it, came out in 2022 by Emily Finley called The Ideology of Democratism. So 
So democratism is the belief that democracy is real or genuine only to the degree that it reflects some idealized conception of the popular will, a, a popular will that has been trained and educated and essentially abides by the teachings of our elite. So the president of, of Freedom House holds to this democratist conception of democracy when he declares that popular majorities are a threat to democracy. So majority rule is often called a threat to democracy, which seems strange. But uh, this, this video that I'm playing will better understand why majority rule is often described as anti-democratic. has its roots in the Latin word populus, meaning the people. But since then, populism has been used to describe dozens of political movements, often with counterintuitive and sometimes contradictory goals. Populist movements have rebelled against monarchies, monopolies, and a wide variety of powerful institutions. It's not possible to cover the full history of this term here. Instead, we're focusing on one specific type of populism, the kind that describes Papandreou's administration and numerous other governments over the last 70 years, modern populism. But to understand how political theorists define this phenomenon, we first need to explore what it's responding to. In the aftermath of World War II, many countries wanted to move away from totalitarian ideologies. They sought a new political system that prioritized individual and social rights, aimed at political consensus, and respected the rule of law. As a result, most Western nations adopted a long-standing form of government called liberal democracy. In this context, liberal doesn't refer to any political party, but Okay, so th this is... Excellent, excellent uh, primer. All right, so in the 17th century, you had the Thirty Years' War, where Protestant Germany and Catholic Germany went to war against each other. It was a brutal conflict, and as a reaction to that, European nations tried to remove the religious from the realm of politics to try to reduce the possibility for religious wars. And then after World War II, elites tried to remove nationalism and racial identification in addition to religion, uh, out of the realm of politics. So you have this growing consensus movement by European elites to take more and more of life and remove it from the realm of the political, to remove it from the realm that you can vote over and uh, contest things within a democracy. Rather, a type of democracy that has three essential components. First, liberal democracies accept that society is full of many, often cross-cutting divisions that generate conflict. So liberal democracy is a self-contradictory term. Liberalism means that we're all born with certain inalienable rights that cannot be taken away by the majority of the people. And d democracy obviously means that uh, the, the will of the people is what determines what happens in society. The, the will of the people through its elected representatives all right, gets to create a society and pass rules based on what the majority of the population wants. So liberalism that we've all got inalienable rights, and democracy are really at odds. Second, it requires that society's many factions seek common ground across those divisions. Finally, liberal democracies rely on the rule of law. Okay, seek common ground. That's a euphemism for rule of experts, and we're going to take increasing parts of life outside the realm of the political, such as religious, racial, and national identification and the protection of minority rights, as specified in constitutions and legal statutes, taken together. So the, the rule of law is being used here as uh, ruling 
elites within the, the legal realm, right? They have the authority to rule illegal, right? Populist referenda and political opinions and political decisions, you know, reached through democratic processes can be ruled, you know, illegal or can be rendered ineffective, right? If legal elites decide that's what we need to do. These ideals propose that tolerance and institutions that protect us from intolerance are the bedrock of a functional and diverse democratic society. Liberal democracies helped bring stability to the nations that adopted them, but like any system of government, they didn't solve everything. Among other issues, an ever-increasing wealth gap led to underserved communities who distrusted both their wealthy neighbors and their political leaders. In some cases, political corruption further damaged the public's trust. Growing suspicion and resentment around these politicians primed citizens to look for a new kind of leader who would challenge established institutions and put the needs of the people first. In many ways, this reaction highlights democracy in action. If the majority of a population feels their interests are underrepresented, they can elect leaders to change that using existing democratic systems. But this is where assertive modern populist candidates can subvert democracy. Modern populists identify themselves as embodying the will of the people. Okay, so to subvert democracy can mean a majority rule because majority rule might uh, over, overturn you know, many you know, legal precedents or elite privileges. So subverting democracy is just hilarious to think about it being used as a term of opprobrium for you know, what the majority of the population might support. And they place those interests above the institutions that protect individual and social rights. Okay, so when the elite, when the mainstream media talks about our democracy, they're really talking about protecting our institutions and the elite who operate them. Modern populists argue these institutions are run by a self-serving ruling minority who seek to control the vast majority of virtuous common people. As a result, politics is no longer about seeking compromise and consensus through tolerant democratic institutions. Instead, these leaders seek to overturn what they see as a broken system. So for, for much of uh, Australia's political history over the past 50 years, for example, uh, the topic of immigration has, by consensus between the major political parties, been taken away from political discourse. It's not something that you can vote on. The major parties in Australia have traditionally agreed not to campaign on the issue of immigration. It's an example of taking more and more of life and removing it from the realm of the political and instead handing it over to elite rule. This means that where a liberal democracy has the utmost respect for institutions like courtrooms, free press, and national constitutions, modern populists disparage... Okay, it has respect for those institutions, all right? Courts and the free press and the constitution, so long as it aligns with what the dominant liberal left consensus believes to be true. So Roe v. Wade was a complete overturning of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, civil rights legislation was an overturning of the U.S. Constitution. And when th there's a, some court ruling that they don't like, such as overturning Roe v. Wade, they're no longer nearly so on board with the rule of law, free press, and, and the Constitution. All right, they're on board with all these things, 
when it aligns with what the liberal left elite who dominate most of our institutions, what they regard as the good and the true. Any establishment that disagrees with the so-called common will. Modern populist parties have arisen in many places, but the leaders of these movements are remarkably similar. They're often charismatic individuals who identify themselves as embodying the will of the people. They make exorbitant promises to their supporters while casting their opponents as traitors actively undermining the country. But whether these politicians are sincere believers or manipulative opportunists, the dynamics they unleash can be profoundly destabilizing for liberal democracy. Even when modern populist leaders don't follow through with their most extreme promises, their impact on political discourse, the rule of law, and public trust can long outlast their time in office. Okay, uh, Jan says, Luke, have you covered any of the National Justice Party collapse? Ralph, Ethan Ralph did a pretty good expose stream with an ex-TRS, The Right Stuff host last night. Big takeaway, TRS has shifted from libertarianism to fascism in 2015 because one of Richard Spencer's funded funders was interested in contributing dollars to TRS but didn't like the libertarianism. So without knowing anything about the particular the particulars of the latest uh, controversy or, or breakaway or dissolution of the National Justice Party, these types of parties attract antisocial people, and antisocial people can't hang together and work together effectively for, for very long. All right, so the type of people who are attracted to this type of ideology don't tend to have good jobs, right? They don't tend to be well-established in their communities, right? They don't tend to be pro-social in inclination, so it's not surprising that uh, people who are dominantly antisocial will just uh, fall out with each other. In fact, it, it seems, seems inevitable. So a few more highlights from this terrific 2022 book, The Ideology of Democratism. So it's routine to hear about this or that policy or action being urgently needed to save democracy. Yet increasingly, it seems democracy must be rescued from itself. It must even be saved from popular majorities. So the term populist is now used to indicate those who allegedly wish to destroy democracy. Right? Populists, as you just heard, are often derided as authoritarians or fascists. So this democratist ideology has created the fame framework for this perplexing phenomenon, equating populism with what would seem to be its opposite, authoritarianism. So the editors of the recent Oxford Handbook of Deliberative Democracy 2018 bemoaned the global ascendancy of post-truth politics and the rise of populist leaders. Right, these deliberative Democrats and others assumed that if the people was only better informed and better educated, they would naturally reject populism and the populist leaders who they had once supported. We have the president of Freedom House, Michael J. Abramowitz, laments that right-wing populists gained votes in parliamentary seats in France, the Netherlands, Germany, and Austria during 2017. While they were kept out of government in all but Austria, he says their success at the polls helps to weaken established parties on both the right and the left. So these right-wing populists, according to Freedom House, are a source of the global democratic crisis, right? Popular majorities, politics that appeal to the majority of the population are a source of the global democratic crisis. So neoconservatism, on the other hand, enjoys no popular support, but is incredibly effective. Why? Right? The first result in Google for defining neoconservatism states a political ideology characterized by an emphasis on free market capitalism and an interventionist American foreign policy. So I think of neoconservatism as an ideology that promotes the use of American force to make the world safe for Israel. So according to Wikipedia, 
neoconservatives typically advocate the unilateral, meaning America acting alone, promotion of democracy and interventionism in foreign affairs, grounded in a militaristic and realist philosophy of peace through strength. I don't notice really much realism here, but they talk a lot about being realistic. And when they talk about realism, they mean exerting tremendous U.S. military force overseas to remake the world in its uh, particular image. So Paul Gottfried says that the neocons call for permanent revolution exists independently of their beliefs about Israel. Paul Gottfried describes the neoconservatives as ranters out of a Dostoevskyan novel or out to practice permanent revolution courtesy of the U.S. government. What makes neocons most dangerous are not their isolated ghetto hang-ups like hating Germans and Southern whites and calling everyone his cousin an anti-Semite, but the leftist revolutionary fury they express. So neocons typically come from a Stalinist and communist background, and then over the course of their lifetimes and the course of events such as the threats to Israel and the recognition that uh, more support for Israel exists in the Republican Party than in the Democratic Party, it brought these former communists basically on board with the Republican Party starting in the 1970s. So populists are usually opposed to the ruling elites and are rarely elite themselves. Neoconservatives, by contrast, are at home among the elites and they know how to influence them. So, for example, neither President George W. Bush nor Vice President Dick Cheney nor Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld were neoconservatives, but they acted in office essentially like neocons. They were influenced by neocons. So neoconservatism reached its peak influence during the administration of George W. Bush, and uh, neocons played a major role in promoting and planning the 2003 invasion of Iraq. People like Paul Wolfowitz, Elliot Abrams, Richard Pearl, and uh, Paul Bremer. So power is usually an insider's game, and populists are rarely insiders. Power usually takes money, and few billionaires are populists. Right? Power is usually something operated by the elites, often on behalf of elite agendas, and populists really tend to be elites. Donald Trump ran a populist campaign and was elected president of the United States in 2016, but he failed to, was unable to recruit many populists to his administration, said the federal government was largely run by people opposed to his platform of populism. So expertise Elites, power, billionaires, establishment, right? They tend to be on one side of the spectrum, and then you get the voices of ordinary people on the other side of the spectrum. So, Stephen Turner is a philosopher of the social sciences. He wrote this terrific book in 2003, Liberal Democracy 3.0 Civil Society in an Age of Experts. He notes that expertise is a violation of the conditions of rough equality that is presupposed by democratic accountability, because now we have all sorts of parts of life, such as, uh, you know, vaccines for COVID, right? Uh, genetic engineering that are apparently out of the reach of democratic control. We seem to have done a whole lot of very risky experiments, uh, gain, of, gain of function research, which uh, may well have unleashed the coronavirus on, on the world, right? This is research that is funded and conducted by elites, even if uh, the vast majority of people are opposed to it. So, the most dangerous of activities, such as gain-of-function research, which may have unleashed the coronavirus on the world, you'd think should be subject to public scrutiny and regulation, precisely because of the imbalances in knowledge between the experts and the people. So we are faced with the dilemma of capitulation to rule by experts, or the alternative is democratic rule that is populist, populist that uh, says that the, the people have wisdom, 
even when the people are ignorant, and even when the people operate on the basis of fear and rumor. The socialist idea is inherently anti-populist. It's hostile to the notion that uh, the people can rule with their untutored preferences and that the ordinary people should decide what law should be enacted. So the traditional idea of socialism is that uh, elites should rule. So Stephen Turner read another terrific book in 2013, The Politics of Expertise, makes the point populism relies upon the expertise of the people in contrast to the expertise of the experts and the administrative class. And then uh, Turner wrote in the 2022 book, Rutledge, International Handbook of Contemporary Social and Political Theory, populism is closely related to democracy, but the concepts are distinct. Populism arises as a reaction of democratic resentment of failures of democracy in which the people are treated as inferior, people are excluded from real decision-making, suffering is blamed on elites. So you see this particularly during the COVID lockdowns and various prescriptions for dealing with COVID. You have this unilateral rule by elites taking away many rights that people took for granted, such as freedom of movement, freedom of worship, leading to a call to a return to the original sense of democracy as the rule of the people. So rule of the people, which is a literal impossibility, paradoxically implies both self-rule and resentment over being ruled. So here is a good little related video on how to understand power. Okay, get to it, guys. Every day of your life, you move through systems of power that other people made. Do you sense them? Do you understand power? Do you realize why it matters? Power is something we're often uncomfortable talking about. That's especially true in civic life, how we live together in community. In a democracy, power is supposed to reside with the people, period. Any further talk about power and who really has it seems a little dirty, maybe even evil. But power is no more inherently good or evil than fire or physics. It just is. It governs how any form of government works. It determines who gets to determine the rules of the game. So learning how power operates is key to being effective, being taken seriously, and not being taken advantage of. In this lesson, we'll look at where power comes from, how it's exercised, and what you can do to become more powerful in public life. Let's start with a basic definition. Power is the ability to make others do what you would have them do. Of course, this plays out in all arenas of life, from family, to the workplace, to our relationships. Our focus is on the civic arena, where power means getting a community to make the choices and to take the actions that you want. There are six main sources of civic power. First, there's physical force and a capacity for violence. Control of the means of force, whether in the police or a militia, is power at its most primal. A second core source of power is wealth. Money creates the ability to buy results. And to buy right, so populists rarely control the police, they rarely control military, and they rarely control financial resources, they rarely control institutions, NGOs, uh, they rarely control places like Harvard and Columbia University. I had a question from from the chat. Uh, has 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 he been charged with anything? I think you referred to Julian Assange. I, I'm not sure he has been charged with anything. He's in he's in prison in England. 
Jan says the social dysfunction at TRS is worse than you imagine during a TRS party. Jazz hands got in an argument about the futility of flat earth conspiracy theories for right-wing politics. So this is what happens when you gather together a bunch of, you know, anti-social conspiracy prone people. They, they don't tend to be terribly effective. So populists tend to be popular, but ineffective, while neocons tend to be unpopular and yet effective. By almost any other kind of power. The third form of power is state action, government. This is the use of law and bureaucracy to compel people to do or not do certain things. In a democracy, for example, we the people theoretically give government its power through elections. In a dictatorship, state power emerges from the threat of force, not the consent of the governed. The fourth type of power is social norms, or what other people think is okay. Norms don't have the centralized machinery of government. They operate in a softer way, peer to peer. But they can certainly make people change behavior and even change laws. Think about how norms around marriage equality today are evolving. The fifth form of power is ideas. An idea, individual liberty, say, or racial equality, can generate boundless amounts of power if it motivates enough people to change their thinking and actions. And so the sixth source of power is numbers, lots of humans. A vocal mass of people creates power by expressing collective intensity of interest and by asserting legitimacy. Think of the Arab Spring or the rise of the Tea Party. Okay, so the Arab Spring, all right, swept the Arab world in 2011, but what concrete results did it achieve? Almost nothing because it lacked elite support. Uh, had the rise of the Tea Party, didn't get uh, much uh, done in, t- in terms of results, but did, did pave the way for the Donald Trump presidency, which got a few things done, a significant reduction in immigration, for example. And for the first time, we had a president in, what, 20 years who did not get us into any new foreign wars. Clouds count. These are the six main sources of power. What? Yeah. Physical force, wealth, state action, social norms, ideas, and numbers. Right, little nice little intro there to the various sources of uh, of power. All right, let's play a little bit more. Jimmy Dore here talking to Tucker Carlson. <laughs> People think that um, Julian Assange, when you when I meet what I call shit libs, my ex my ex friends who are still Democrats, and think that by voting for a Democrat, they pat themselves on the back that they're virtuous and they're somehow fighting white supremacy, Nazism, and fascism, and they're they're and they're you know. This whole idea, I had a friend say to me, this is a, this is a direct quote, uh, Jimmy, I'll go along with a lot of the shit you say, which actually doesn't sound like he would. But he then said, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> but uh, January 6th undermined our democracy. And I was like, well, that's adorable. That's what you think did it? You think January 6th is what? You don't live in a democracy. We live in an oligarchy. And that was proven over 10 years ago by a yes. Princeton study that what you think and want, no matter how many votes you vote, doesn't have any effect on legislation whatsoever. Okay, so do you think Jimmy Dore is really getting his point of view and his worldview from, you know, elite academic studies? No, he picks and chooses those studies that support his point of view. The only people that affect legislation is the top 10% of the wealthy people in this country, which makes us an oligarchy by definition. Your government was stolen by corporations probably 50 or 60 years ago, which is why workers haven't had a real raise since 1980. And when are you going to get pissed off about that? The answer is never, because the man on the television didn't tell him to get pissed off about that. I couldn't agree more if I couldn't. By the way, if they can, like, kill your president in plain view, 
And then the lone gunman kills the lone gunman, and then they force you to, like, believe what is so clearly a lie. Uh, just absurd Tucker here arguing that the CIA killed John F. Kennedy, for which there's no evidence. And then they attack you as crazy if you question it, and then you go along with it. Maybe you don't kind of, maybe you're not ready for a democracy. I mean, at some point, people have to say, you know, I'm a free man, I'm a citizen, I pay my taxes, I obey most of your stupid laws, and I kind of demand representation or I'm going to get very ornery. And you see almost none of that. You, you don't. So I don't know. People are free when they demand freedom. And people who don't demand freedom don't get it. You know, we did have, I have to push back a little bit. We said we've never had a real conversation about taxes. We did have a conversation about one tax. And this is, I know, because my brother watches too much cable news. And one day out of nowhere, I'm at his house and he goes, Jimmy, we got to get rid of that estate tax. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? And he goes, the estate tax, that's, uh, you know, that's when the government takes that. He make, by the way, my brother makes about $50,000 a year who said this. And I, he said, you know, that's when they, if you die and you have millions and millions of dollars, the government just takes half of it. They just take it. I was like, well, that's horrible. Let me know when that becomes a problem and I'll organize a rally. But until then, maybe you should worry about the t-shirt tax at Walmart because I'm pretty sure estates don't have two cars that don't work on the front lawn. Um, so we did. So we did have a we did have a discussion almost nightly for a few years about the estate tax on on network cable news, and that was because they wanted to cut the estate tax, and that's exactly what they did. Yeah. But it's kind of been overtaken by events. That debate. It's an interesting debate, and I agree. I agree. I would actually. I would love to hear that debate. Any, any debate about economics is a good debate, as far as I'm concerned. Any debate, and I'm very open minded. So, like, convince me. But that specific debate is kind of moot now because really rich. I mean, if you've got you know some family business or whatever, it's a real issue. But if you're a billionaire, it's not an issue at all because you use our nonprofit system to shield your money. Right? It's all about family. Okay, incredibly entertaining and appealing discussion here between Tucker Carlson and Jimmy Dore. But the people who resonate with this kind of discussion, they can't seem to get anything done, anything accomplished in a society. They don't seem to be able to build institutions. Right? They don't seem to be able to rise to elite status. Why, why is that? Like, why a populace so popular but so hapless, so ineffective? And I was looking at some parts of Stephen Turner's memoir, Mad Hazard, A Life in Social Theory. And he writes about the 1960s, my politics by the beginning of the anti-Vietnam War movement were anti-establishment and populist. The war, as we know from the reporting of Cy Hirsch, was a Kennedy concoction run by Harvard elites like George McBundy, George, McGeorge Bundy thought nothing of throwing away the lives of young people who are not of their kind under the supervision of the inept William Westmoreland, lying about their successes, failing to take the opportunities that they were given to end the slaughter. This was a class war as well as a generational war. Class war because the elites were at elite universities and were able to skip the draft. And Turner notes, My instincts were populist, not in tune with the times during the 60s and later, when there was still faith in the efficacy of government programs based on the assumed technical experience and implemented by massive bureaucracies. So it used to be assumed that if we just had the really smart people operating government programs that we could effectively declare war on North Vietnam, effectively declare war on poverty, effectively declare war on, on drugs, and the really smart people who are running government bureaucracies would be able to get things done. I think we're probably a little more skeptical these days, all right? It seems that Anytime we declare war on something, we, we end up losing. In 2021, Stephen Turner read an essay called Ideology of Anti-Populism and the Administrative State. So he notes that the, the people, the state, and the experts form an unstable triad. 
and relating to the three in a coherent way, either institutionally or theoretically, is not possible. So what you get is essentially a coalition between the state and the experts and the people frequently left out in the cold. So populism is a belief in the virtue of the people. So a populist says, you know, someone who thinks people are basically right more often than the expert. And so progressivism was to be an alliance of experts and aroused people. And this came out of an emergent practice of social movements based on expertise, such as the prohibition movement, which employed the techniques then now associated with climate science under the healing alcohol science through this and other movements. This became the third leg in the modern triad. And anti-populism came to take the form of a set of assertions about expertise and governance. So the anti-populist is not satisfied with the people's virtue, but he faces a fundamental problem. To deny populism is to deny democracy, or at least the founding element of the democratic ideal that the people should be and are the best governors of themselves. Thus, anti-populism, if it pretends to be democratic, cannot overtly deny the myth of the people. But the need for rulers and for the justification of their rule creates an opportunity to redefine the democratic idea to create an appropriate counter-myth that enables the people to have a place but not to have rule over themselves. So you create opportunities for the people to speak and to vent, but the real decisions are made by the elites. When you look at uh, academic research into populism, all right, almost all the leading experts on populism who regard populism as a terrible thing are Jewish. So Richard Hofstetter took to the populace and he, he thought there was just something wrong with the people. All right? he, he wrote The Authoritarian Personality and people like him said that the people have these irrational drives and longings which lead them to embrace things like Nazism or communism or, or populism that there's something pathological with the people and they need to have more mental health, right? They need to be educated. So this is the tendency on the, on the left, right? People on the liberal left end of the spectrum, their, their greatest fear is that people are uneducated and ignorant and thus susceptible to these primitive medieval attachments to blood and soil, to God, to traditional forms of family arrangements, social arrangements, and uh, families. And on the right, the greatest fear is contamination and threats from outsiders. So the academics who have been most famously critical of populists have tended to be Jews and people from the Northeast, and those academics who defended populists tended to be Gentiles, often from the South or the Midwest. But this is really spoken about. So perhaps one reason populism doesn't get much done in the United States is that Jews tend to instinctively fear populism because Jews have not tended to be terribly popular and Jews have survived over the centuries in, in Europe by making deals with elites like the kings or the, the nobles or whoever has the power. And so there is an instinctive Jewish skepticism and fear of populism. In June 19, 2016, Armin Rosen wrote for the Tablet magazine. The article's headline, Dave Rubin, the voice of liberals who were mugged by progressives. And then Armin writes, then the conversation lurched in a less savory direction. This sometimes happens on the Rubin Report. 
Given some of the riskier guests that Dave Rubin has hosted since his show launched in August of 2015, people like English Defense League founder and anti-immigration activist Tommy Robinson or pro-Trump author and Twitter pugilist Mike Cernovich. So what exactly makes Mike Cernovich a risky guest for a podcast? Right? The real reason that uh, Cernovich is seen as a risky guest is that he is a threat to the hero systems of people like Armand Rosen. Right? Can you imagine a normal right-wing is saying anybody is a risky guest for a podcast? Right? Right-wing people don't tend to talk and think that way. They don't tend to be afraid of anyone's ideas. It's only on the left that uh, certain people are considered risky guests for a podcast. And the risk is to whom? The risk is to a particular dominant liberal left hero system. So, for example, the stronger the Japanese identify as Japanese, the more likely they are to have negative views of outsiders. The stronger the Australian gets in his Australian identity, the more likely he is to have negative views of outsiders. So I was a Seventh-day Adventist growing up in Australia, and Seventh-day Adventists were considered very much outside the Australian realm of, of what is normal. And so there are a lot of negative views about Seventh-day Adventists in Australia compared to in America. Stronger a Muslim gets in his Muslim identity, the more likely he is to have negative views of non-Muslims. Stronger a black person gets in his black identity, such as Nation of Islam, the more likely he is to have negative views of non-blacks. So the stronger the person gets in his racial, national, religious identity, the more likely he is, if he's not Jewish, to dislike Jews, and the more likely he'll be to organize around that view and to take action on it. So when people like Armin Rosen says guests like Mike Sonovich and Tommy Robinson are risky, he's implicitly recognizing that populism and nationalism are often an easy sell to Goyim as they naturally incline to strong racial or national identities or religious identities, and these are likely to be anti-Jewish. Jewish survival and prosperity in the West has usually been based on cutting deals with elites. Elites cannot rule on their own. Elites need a divided society, and then they make, make deals with segments of society. The Jews have rarely been popular. Organized Jewry has frequently cut deals with elites such as kings, nobles, and other parts of the ruling class. In exchange for protection, Jews will contribute money and other resources to the rulers. But always under the surface, you have these populist, nationalist, anti-Jewish sentiments just busting to get out. These anti-Jewish sentiments tend to be strongest in corporate countries such as Muslim, Catholic, and East Asian countries, and they tend to be weakest in individualist Protestant countries like the United States, England, and Australia. Foundations, as you noted at the outset. So I'm kind of wondering, like, what is the point of a, quote, nonprofit? I mean, they, nonprofits, if you really think about it, NGOs, whatever you call them, kind of define our country. They have more power than the Congress. I'm not sure they're working always for the public good. And they don't pay any taxes at all, which makes them twice as powerful as everyone else. So why do we have that system? I don't understand. How about a system where everybody pays the same tax, the same tax rate, everybody, Okay. Keep it low, and rich people can't get out of it. I mean, it's just a thought. And if, you, if I work in a company, you pay taxes. If I, if I work in a church, I pay taxes. I'm pro-church. I like church, okay? But I don't see why churches shouldn't have to pay taxes. If people go to the church, support it, that's good, right? They can tithe more. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm totally happy with that. And I just think the nonprofit thing is one of the biggest scams I've ever seen. Why does Harvard have billions and billions and billions of dollars in its endowment and it's still charging 100 grand a year to go there? So, like, how, who's benefiting from this? Like, it doesn't, not that you'd ever go to Harvard or want to, but, to, and many colleges are this way. Like, what is, why are they paying no money? I, I mean, I'd love to hear a debate on that. You drive down Hollywood Boulevard and it's filled with Scientology buildings and some of the most expensive uh, real estate in Los Angeles and they not have to pay any taxes yeah. because Al Ron Hubbard is a nonprofit. So, he's a religion. He's a religion somehow. Of um, yes, and they got that by suborning the IRS commissioner under Bill Clinton. 
And I'll never forget when that happened. And I ran into that guy at the TSA line in National Airport right after he made that decision to make Scientology a, quote, religion under U.S. tax law. And I did not have the balls to ask him. I stood right next to him in this TSA line. Fred Goldberg, I think his name was. And I want to say, you really gave tax-exempt status to L. Ron Hubbard? But it was one of those great moments in my life that I wasted through cowardice. APEC had a, not the Jewish lobbying group, but the Pacific uh, lobbying hey, group. Hey, Elliot, uh, what's going on, man? Pacific countries. Oh, uh, blessings, Luke. Uh, sorry. Uh, um, hold on a second. Let me. Yeah, yeah, no worries. So I, yeah. I know that you you've gone to a sports bar, so I was just. Uh, yeah, sorry. yeah, it's football. It's football season, and uh, so I found this tiki bar next to me. Uh, and there goes Elliot. Doggone it! Have we have we so, lost him? Uh, okay. uh, hold on a second. Sorry, bro. <laughs> God. Are you there? Yeah, go ahead. I, I don't know what happened. I must have hit something on my cheek. Um, yeah, so this tiki bar football in the afternoon. Uh, I yeah, so I'm just trying to you know get out and about, meet 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 people, you know. So I go to the bar, I sit down at the bar, watch a football game, and like immediately, I within five minutes of sitting down, like these barfly types come through the door and. They just sort of make a beeline for me. It was it was kind of amazing. I don't know why. I sort of kind of give off this vibe of being ready to chit chat or something. So anyway, uh, so I get to talking, and um, this guy just starts spilling his guts to me. You know, like within minutes of meeting me, they're like all over the place. Their whole bio, everything about them, what they like to do, what they like to eat. You know, all this kind of stuff. And I'm just sitting there trying to like maintain this um you know maintain a face that sort of conveys interest or internally i'm thinking when is this going to end you know <laughs> like when is this tedium going to end it's uh, uh normal life doesn't just give me the 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 uh the dopamine that, that that twitter does this is a real problem i i do you find this with you uh, you, like normal conversations do you just do they do they grind you down well yeah, many conversations I, I find boring and I, I get out of. I'm 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 not sure. I let, let me I'll have to think more. But uh why weren't you able to relate to this guy? Um I I don't know. He just seemed to be he wanted his whole worldview seemed to be like about his consumption choices and the consumption choices he makes. And why he likes them, you know, versus others. I, I, which I have no idea which which consumption choices. So he's talking about, you know, the, the restaurants he likes to go to, the foods he likes to eat, the things he likes okay. to cook at home. H hang on, wife's... hang on, hang on, Elliot. I just got to put you on pause because Carla's just got um, right. a few minutes. Right. Uh, so if right. if you'll excuse me. Yeah, I'll call uh, back later. I'll call yeah, back later. Come, come back in later. Uh, right. Colin, uh, what's what's going on with the National Justice Party? Okay. Yeah. Hello, 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 Luke. Yes. Hello. What, what's going on with the NJP? Yeah. Well, I think uh, what's going on with the NJP is the inevitable. Uh, it was always a bit of a grift. It wasn't uh, a serious party. It wasn't going to appeal to uh, enough normal people, and um, the pool of donations was going to uh, rapidly shrink as the initial excitement evaporated. And uh, they were all going to start um, 
tearing chunks out of each other. And, and I think that's what we're seeing now. Right. So it's a, a collection of antisocial people, and this was inevitable. Well, in a way, they, they were social people. I mean, they had their own little society. They, they had their own little um, kind of cult group. Um, but I think the problem is that uh, they started to um, kind of uh, eat each other in a way. You know, they could, they're like rats in a barrel. After a, you know, after a while, they start to feed on each other. Okay. And uh, I want to get your, your big picture perspective on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Where, where does this conflict stand in your, your estimate? Um, yeah, well, I think, um, I mean, you have to look at it um, in terms of ideology. And the ideology that uh, Russia needs to continue fighting this war is uh, the ideology that is um, currently established in a place like North Korea. And then you have to ask yourselves, are the Russian people, including the, uh, the elites and the, uh, the more populist stirrings, are they, are they ready to head in that direction? And uh, my guess is that they are probably not ready to um, head in that direction. So if the pressure is maintained on Russia, I think Russia will definitely break. Uh, who, who's winning right now? Is it the West or Russia? Well, the West is not fully involved, of course. This is um, you know, a war in which one country has been attacked by the other, and we are um, sort of uh, supporting one of the sides in order to um, half-heartedly prop up the international system. Um, so it's really a question of the um, of a dysfunctional global system, which we're not uh, fully committed to. We're sort of um, half in and half out. Is it is America's interests uh, are America's interests being being served by heavily subsidizing and supporting Ukraine in this conflict? Um, I. It, will, it all depends because it depends how things turn out. But I, I would say, generally speaking, uh, yes, they are because America is a country that does benefit from the global system. Uh, but America is, is not the only country. I think almost every single country in the world benefits from a global system because once you remove the global system, uh, then you get into a kind of free-for-all. And then you have um, countries that fancy their chances taken on other countries and then very quickly, that's going to escalate into all sorts of um, pointless, uh, intractable wars. And so we, we all kind of benefit uh, from a global system. Of course, you might take the alt-right, the, um, the alternative alt-right view that um, war is a good thing because it makes men harder and tougher and stronger. And um, it creates more militaristic and um, disciplined and traditionalist societies, blah, blah, blah. But, of course, a lot of people get killed in the process. And if uh, if Russia gets its way, what would that look like and what would be the repercussions? Well, it's kind of hard to see Russia entirely getting its way because if Russia gets its uh, way temporarily in, in, um, in terms of... Um, scoring a temporary victory over the Ukraine, that doesn't really mean that Russia um, has reached a, a kind of uh, stable point. 
because um, that just reinforces um, Putin's grip on power, and that just make, makes Russia more toxic. So, so Russia has to sort of come back to the rest of the world by uh, going through Putin. So Russia will will win when it kind of gets rid of Putin, I think. So you're saying that uh, replacements for for Putin would not be would not have similar designs on at least parts of Ukraine. Uh, possibly they would, but the thing is, like Putin had a certain amount of credibility. He was somebody that uh, Western leaders could uh, meet, and of course they frequently did. People could sit down with him, uh, they could phone him up, they could uh, do deals, you know, Macron, Merkel, all these people used to um, frequently um, discuss things with uh, Putin and reach various kinds of agreements. And, you know, he was taken at his word. And I think he's kind of like blown that credibility. So it's very, very difficult for for Russia under Putin to sort of um, make any kind of uh, stable um, arrangements with uh, the rest of the world. And that's going to be a real handicap to the, the Russian government. Now, if uh, there was some sort of, um, you know, Putin suddenly got ill or decided to step down for whatever reason, and a new guy was put in, the, the new guy would have a certain amount of credibility because he was a new guy. He hadn't uh, so blatantly kind of broken his word. He hadn't so blatantly lied. He, he you know, he, he could say that uh, he wasn't involved in all the past misdeeds of Putin, like uh, assassinating people in Western countries, spreading polonium about and Novichok and so, so on. And so it would be a kind of reset button. So that would be the reset button. So get rid of Putin is, uh, you know, to, to use that um, well-known phrase, the reset button. And uh, I, I'd have to think that this this war in Ukraine is great for China because it keeps American uh, resources tied up in in Europe. It keeps the brain power that we all only have so much, you know, brain power and concentration ability focused in Europe, while China can uh, continue on with its plans to expand in East Asia, and it keeps Russia. Uh, particularly dependent on China. So I'd have to think that it's in China's interest for this war in Ukraine to go on as long as possible. Um, <clears throat> in maybe yes or no, but um, it's not as simple as that. That's, that seems to be a rather kind of populist way of looking at it, I think. Uh, I think if you were um, going to consult the elites and the experts, they would probably tell you that uh, America isn't really committing very many resources to uh, Ukraine. And uh, there's plenty of uh, military hardware in the Pacific region that would uh, make a, a Chinese move against Taiwan extremely dangerous. Also, the uh, this war will serve as a kind of warning uh, to China because, you know, um, things turned out to be quite different from what this uh, so-called genius Putin expected. And Xi Jinping is not quite as, um, um, I don't think Xi Jinping is, 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 is such a gambler as, good as Putin. I think he's a, he's a more cautious and careful personality. And so looking at what's happened to Putin's so-called three-day operation, 
Uh, he would really think uh, more than twice about getting involved in a, an attack on uh, Taiwan, for example. And uh, it seems like the Biden administration is desperate to at least keep uh, Ukraine propped up through the 2024 election, because if uh, if the Congress doesn't uh, come through with support for Ukraine and Ukraine collapses, I expect that would, look, would be bad for Joe Biden's re-election chances. Does that seem right? Well, I don't think uh, the Ukraine will collapse. I mean, because... Uh... To collapse, you need to have something to collapse to. And um, I mean, the Russians have suffered very, very badly from this war, and they wouldn't be in a position uh, to take over Ukraine if, uh, you know, even if they managed to pull off some fluke victory. Um, So I don't think, uh, I mean, there could be some sort of political collapse, but I don't think that's on the cards either. But, you know, that would depend upon... uh, monitoring uh, the situation. I think probably uh, I haven't looked into this in any depth or, you know, read any sources on this, but I would assume that uh, morale is reasonably good in the Ukraine when you're a country that has been um, suddenly invaded by another country. Most people tend to rally around and uh, there's not much else to do. Really, you have to um, stand and fight. And so I, I think that will bolster the Ukrainians. Um, if there was going to be a political collapse, I think um, the um, you know the, the Western deep states would probably have a, a forewarning of that, and they would be able to do something to sort of um, preempt it, because it would have to be an, uh, an illegal operation, any political collapse. So I don't think uh, that's on the cards. I think this is going to um, grind on. It's going to be a bit of a stalemate for a while, and uh, you know. This is all tied into the Russian election cycle now. And people are saying that uh, once Putin has his fake election in March next year, he's going to call for a, a mass mobilization. And uh, maybe that's his last throw of the dice. If that, if the Russian people are prepared to swallow that, uh, if he's able to mobilize uh, another few hundred thousand people, will that make any difference? And maybe it won't. Maybe the Ukraine will be able to sit back there and keep taking pot shots at these uh, these desperate Russian meat wave attacks. So it's not looking particularly good for anybody right now, but it's definitely not looking good for the Russians. So I think there's a lot of uh, unjustified optimism uh, on the kind of pro-Russian side, which is and- kind of natural. Which is kind of natural because all these people are um, emotionally motivated to, um, you know, think what they think. And can you tell me anything about the Duran podcast and uh, its principal, Alexander Makuris? Um Well, I, I would say that um, I haven't actually watched too much of their content, but they were obviously shilling hard for uh, Russia. Um, they got a lot of things wrong. Um, Stephen J. James covered them quite closely and he noticed um, how biased they were. And I think uh, I, would, I would take his word on uh, on the Duran. And uh, how's Rishi Sunak doing? He seems to be a highly competent prime minister, but faces a very tough re-election fight. Um, yeah, the British politics, yeah. Um, um, yeah, he's he's just not clicking with the uh, the voters for some reason. I wonder what that could be. You know, he's he's doing a great job. He's a nice guy. He's um, you know, he's he's smart. He's he's good looking. Uh, but um, I mean, it's almost like a, a perfect 
right, platonic ideal of a British government, but somehow it's just not clicking with the voters. I just can't put my finger on that. Very, very, very mysterious. Yeah, and uh, people should check some of your your short pods and other work explaining what's going on as uh, England uh, will appear to, to many people as being increasingly ruled by a by a South Asian elite. Uh, Israel, Gaza, Iran, Hezbollah, anything in this uh, fight that has grabbed your attention over the last few weeks? Um, yeah, yeah, well, uh, well, I'm, I'm sort of very, you know, concerned about the fate of uh, the Gazans, as you can well imagine. And uh, also, you know, we have this problem about uh, Israel, you know, because like, I think Israel's kind of um, holding together at the moment. Uh, but before this, um, this Gazan war or Palestinian war, I guess we should really call it, before this uh, flared up, Israel was really um, falling apart in, in, in lots of ways. There was, a, there was all sorts of um, uh, schisms and divisions going on. Uh, people wanted to get rid of the the um, Netanyahu government. The Netanyahu government wanted to f fuck around with the constitution, and you know, of course, Bibi survives by patching together these increasingly um, weird-looking coalitions. So the war is has kind of put uh, Israeli politics on hold, I think, and uh, it's quite quite uh, interesting. That happened because it's almost like um, you know Hamas. They had they um, Hamas had to just like sit there and do nothing, and things would have probably gone in their direction. Um, but rather than do that, they decided to launch this attack on Israel, and this has kind of kept um, the status quo in place. And um, you know, at some point, though, that um, that kind of Hamas effect is going to wear off and then we're going to revert back to Israeli politics. And then uh, there's quite a good chance that, uh, you know, Bibi will be kicked out and some sort of um, peace deal will probably be patched up, some sort of ceasefire and then a peace deal. And uh, there'll be a bit of uh, rebuilding in Gaza and uh, there'll be... The usual rubbish going on in the West Bank, and nothing really much will have changed, except maybe there'll be one or two more settlements in the West Bank. So this sort of um, gradual nibbling away kind of approach that uh, Israel is um, employing. But uh, you know, it might swing the other way because uh, you know the uh, if the if the Netanyahu government falls. Uh, another government might come in, which might be willing to kind of look at um, uh, the situation more radically and, and try to establish a permanent peace. But I think it's just generally going to be very, very hard uh, in the long run, you know, uh, whatever happens for Israel and the Palestinians to ever live in peace. And it's very, very hard for either the Palestinians or the Israelis to kind of finally uh, resolve that in a kind of conclusive way. So I just think uh, this is going to um, smolder on for um, the next few decades and uh, become increasingly uh, tedious for people who uh, take an interest in it. Yeah. What do you make of Joe Biden flying to Israel during during a time of war? Just seemed like a, a bizarre choice. 
Not really, no. I mean, he's trying to, um, at that time, there was a genuine fear that this could escalate. Um, a lot of people thought, you know, with Israel doing a Dresden on Gaza, that uh, it would bring in Hezbollah. And if uh, Hezbollah came in, that would cause very, very serious problems for Israel. Um, and then that would kick things off with the Iranians, you know, because um, first of all, let's, let's, let's remember that Hezbollah is in a position to do quite a lot of harm to Israel because Israel has, um, I, I believe Israel has quite a lot of uh, gas uh, out to sea. And so there's these drilling rigs or gas rigs, which uh, pump gas. And those are very easy uh, to destroy targets if you have a lot of rockets. And um, also Israel has most of its water, drinking water comes from desalination plants. And those can be located quite uh, clearly and, and targeted. So Hezbollah could do quite a lot of damage to Israel. Israel would then blame that quite rightly on Iran and Israel can do quite a lot of damage to Iran. So there was a real danger of um, this war escalated. And I think Joe Biden's uh, first concern, and I guess he should be praised for this, was to you know get on top of the situation and keep a lid on things and just keep it between the two parties directly involved. And yeah, I think he was highly successful in doing that, but uh, he doesn't seem to be getting much praise at the moment for doing that. Yeah. Okay, Colin, I know it's late for you. So was there anything else that you wanted to hit before you hang up? Oh, not not this late, no. At this time of night, just uh, want to hit the hay. So okay. Thanks, anyway, man. nice talking. Yeah, good cheers, talking mate. to you. Cheers, cheers. Talk to you later. Okay, let's get some more Jimmy Dore. Came, so Xi Jinping came to San Francisco a few weeks ago. And yeah. all of a sudden, all the homeless people disappeared because Gavin Newsom decided yeah. he wanted to clean up San Francisco to impress Xi Jinping, the head of China. So what that what I've always suspected is that they want this homeless problem to be taking place like they could fix it like that. And that proved yeah. it. That proved it that they could fix it like that. Just a couple of years ago in California, Gavin Newsom said that the state of California had a 40 billion dollar surplus. That was that was a true thing. And so I've known that you could fix homelessness in the entire country for somewhere around 20 to 40 billion dollars. And so why wouldn't he just take a couple of billion dollars and fix homelessness in his own state? And so it seems to me like the WEF and the handful of billionaires who run this country who also run the global economy. So that's the you know, there's a there's a scene from Network, that movie from 1974, where Ned Beatty says there are no countries. There's only companies and the global transfer of dollars. And so we're really living in that. And I think that there's a hand. And so the people in Congress and the, obviously the president isn't they don't run things. They're taking orders. They're taking orders from the donor class, which is a handful of billionaires that run everything. And for some reason, they want to have an open border. They want to have flood, us flooded with immigrants. I know why that is, but they want to keep homelessness. And there's plenty of I, there's plenty of theories why one of them is because it's a fentanyl line. They can't go into the homeless encampments. And but I think it's it's to it's so I, I heard uh, uh, a Scottish. Uh, I can't think of his name that we just covered him. Neil uh, Neil Oliver say, you know, it's there to make. I know Neil Oliver. Yeah, he's a he's a great guy. He he's, he said that, uh, you know, it's there to make people who are on edge stay on edge. Yeah, this is this is such quintessential populist dialogue that they're like great guys. They're evil guys and there are simple solutions, but the elites don't want to implement them, that we could solve homelessness, homelessness by just spending 20 to 40 billion dollars. 
And so that's why that's right. it's in every city. And they could fix it like that, and they won't do it? Of course. And what what is your theory on why they won't fix the homelessness problem and why they won't give people a living wage and why they won't give people health care like the rest of the goddamn world? What is your theory on this? Well, I mean, it's it's the same as, as all the things that make your life worse. Low-level crime, high-level crime is never punished, as you know. The big financial crimes are never punished. How many people went to prison after the meltdown of 08? Zero. I'm just doing the math, right around zero. Right, maybe because they weren't committing crimes. Maybe they were just being played for suckers by United States government policy that forced banks to lend to all sorts of people who were not creditworthy but were members of you know, politically protected groups. Right. Well, they did but find a Chinese course, bank. They know, did find some Chinese bankers in New York. Remember that? Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> exactly. But fine. But the low-level stuff they love because it makes you miserable. It makes you miserable. You expect less. You're off balance. And it's, of course, all together, it amounts to chaos. That's exactly what it is. It's chaos. You feel like things are complete. Right. This is so appealing. All right. This is so entertaining. This is so fun to listen to. But if you optimize for truth, right, this is you know, largely useless. But it's so fun. It's so entertaining, but useless. So th there's a 2011 academic paper that kind of summarizes that discussion. And most right-wing populist dialogue, this academic paper is called Ears Wide Shut. Epistemological populism, argutainment, and Canadian conservative talk radio, but it's also true for Australian and American talk radio. What, so, what is the epistemology of Adler Online? So, it's a right wing Canadian show hosted by Charles Adler back in, in 2011. So, epistemology means how do we know what we know? And so, the epistemology of this populist show is a perspective that it, these academics call epistemological populism, which is also what Tucker Carlson and his interlocutor, right, are engaged in Jimmy Dore, right? So it comes from those types of populist political discourse that uh, put a priority on the knowledge of the common people, on people's lived experience by virtue of their proximity to everyday life as distinguished from the rarefied knowledge of elites, which reflects their alienation from everyday life and the common sense it produces. So epistemological populism is established through a variety of rhetorical techniques and assumptions. So there's the assertion that individual opinions based upon firsthand experience are much more reliable as a form of knowledge than those generated by theories and academic studies. So when I hear from anti-vax people, they'll talk about all members of their family and uh, extended family who got the vax still came down with COVID. So they'll argue from these firsthand experiences as opposed to academic studies. You get the valorization, meaning putting a high priority on specific types of firsthand experiences, particularly reliable sources of legitimate knowledge. And so you get the privileging of emotional intensity as an indicator of the reliability of opinions. Well, he must you know, really feel strongly about this. Therefore, he's more likely to be telling us the truth. And you get the use of uh, populist discourse to dismiss other types of knowledge as elitist, therefore illegitimate. And then finally, you get the appeal to common sense as a discussion-ending trump card. So Charles Adler says, opinions that are armed with life experience, that's what we are looking for on this show. And this is one of the promotions that uh, Adler Online used to go into commercial breaks. All right? This particular declaration offers an excellent entry point into our analysis of Adler Online's epistemological populism as it definitely captures the program's unequivocal preference for political sentiments which emerge directly from the crucible, both ordinary and extraordinary experience at the individual level. So such individual experience is what lies at the core of common sense, which is consistently celebrated 
on the program is a counterpart to the excessively ideological, intellectual, or idealistic politics of those who lack grounding in the real world. And Charles Adler says, opinions are great. Opinions are wonderful, but opinions are with personal experience. All right, that's knowledge, man. Those opinions are a whole lot better. So knowledge that grows out of an individual's lived experience is knowledge that one can trust. So knowledge and experience become identical in this type of populist discourse. An individual's lived proximity to something becomes an index of their capacity to truly understand it, to truly care about it, to develop valid opinions about it, and to speak about it with authority. Conversely, the more abstract the form of knowledge and reasoning, the less rooted in concrete individual experience, the more such knowledge is to be regarded with suspicion, especially when their conclusions contradict the wisdom of common sense and practical everyday experience by the common people. Then you get a sorting of the type of guests, callers, and experiences through which the program legitimates certain opinions and knowledge, say, about crime, and reinforces this epistemological populism. So you won't get a lot of discussion of statistical crime rates. Instead, you'll get guests and callers serving up various anecdotes and common sense observations, which function as theoretical generalizations while simultaneously disavowing their theoretical status. So has violent crime become a major problem in Canadian cities? Has Canadian penal practice become a revolving door for violent offenders? The answer is clear for Charles Adler. If I open up the lines, he says, and simply discuss situations that people are aware of, he explained. I mean, some people have scrapbooks on this stuff, situations where people involved in heinous crimes are either out there on parole, committed two, three, four, six other crimes, simply sit in the bucket for a year or two. We can do a show like that, go on for 24 hours, still have phone calls. So as the anecdotes pile up in typical right-wing talk radio segments, Segment after segment, anecdote after anecdote, all right? Uh, all, you know, countervailing arguments and evidence, such as academic studies, are dismissed, all right? So you get the valorization of the accumulation of certain types of anecdotes. This is a viable form of populist knowledge-making, enabling out-of-hand dismissal of contradictory arguments, contradictory reasoning, or contradictory facts. Completely out of control. When you show up, you know, to 7-Eleven and, like, everything is locked, because there's so much shoplifting and you have to step over some passed out guy to get in there and there's a crazy person screaming at you by the cooler. You know, the net effect is to make you feel like, man, you know, this is completely out of control. And I think this is a predicate for a change of government, the form of government. I, I do think that. The one thing we know they hate is the one thing they say they claim they love, which is democracy. They hate that. What's democracy? It's the, the majority kind of gets to decide roughly where we go next. That's the one thing they can't handle because all the decisions are made by such a tiny group. And so they are working as hard as they possibly can to make us dissatisfied with what we have as a first step toward getting us to change it and to be uh, you know, willing to accept a much more authoritarian form of government, which is coming very soon. It's obvious. I don't want that. It's the opposite of what I want. I don't think I'm a conspiracy nut or crazy. But all the evidence kind of points that it's sort of overwhelming. Like, why else would you do this? You don't need to have any of these problems. By the way, you don't have to. You don't even. Epistemological populism. Right. Great term. So back to this academic paper from 2011, but still completely valid for 2023 and valid for most uh, right-wing populist discourse. So you get Charles Adler's affirmation of a mode of experiential political reasoning, which effortlessly shifts back and forth between personal experience and broader social and political questions. Their broader trends and perspectives are never allowed to challenge the experience of the people who call in. Now, one of the challenges faced by an experience-based epistemology is not everyone's experience is the same. Not all anecdotes fit the common sense conclusions served up by the conservative host. So how does the host distinguish between legitimate and illegitimate forms of individual knowledge, experience, and common sense? 
So you get a straightforward ideological filtering of guests and callers, which strains out those whose experience, opinions, and epistemological framework differs from that of the host. Then you get the elevation of certain individual experiences as the only legitimate form of knowledge. And uh, you encourage the audience to accept, say, the police opinions as facts, as objective truth, not on the basis of any evidence presented, rather because the police have this day-to-day level experience as a police officer. This grants him a special automatic epistemological authority. So the persuasive force of epistemological populism flows from its ability to activate and apply the populist celebration of the people and common sense, and then it uses the other side of the populist trope, the attack on elites, to dismiss contending forms of knowledge and political opinion. So the laudable voices of the people are contrasted with the elitist views of academics, defense lawyers, and political progressives who represent the special interests of criminals and gangs. So dismissing competing epistemological sources of knowledge by explicitly attacking them as elitist is a common pattern in populist discourse. So you have a populist logic which defines itself as a utopian alternative to mainstream models of journalism. You've got a discourse that is really argutainment. So when Tucker Carlson talks to Jimmy Dore, it's wildly entertaining. Right? And it justifies itself through its ability to speak to and represent the interests of the people. Right? It defies what is good for the people. It moves effortlessly between the political and the market. So commercial success and the public good and the number of viewers are all fused together. So what people want in commercial terms is evidenced by market share and views. And what people need in political terms is represented as the same thing a provocative and entertaining style of debate, blood sports, right? defined as highly emotional, passionate, strongly opinionated, simple and brief and confrontational. So you need an aggressive and opinionated host to filter out ideas and modes of speech which the audience does not want to hear. So you'll have the host celebrating this broadcast revolution. And you had uh, Megyn Kelly and Tucker Carlson celebrating you know, live streaming as a broadcast revolution in which the antiquated conventions of journalism and the bland, empty rhetoric of public orations and academic discourse are swept aside in the interests of an energizing political discussion and debate. So we are invited to this energetic populist renewal of the public space, which public discussion and debate you know, simulates what he imagines going on at kitchen tables and coffee shops of the nation. You get a frank, honest, confrontational exchange of opinion that is open to anyone who wants to join the conversation. And this is contrasted with the decayed, elitist forms of discourse that it seeks to replace, such as the academic and mainstream journalistic forms of speech. So for the right-wing populist, mainstream media's traditional commitment to balance objectivity and politically correct speech, which all tend to get Led lumped together leads to an anemic and boring public sphere, right, in which an unconditional respect for the views of others has emasculated our capacity and desire to make difficult but necessary political judgments. Because in mainstream discourse, there are all sorts of obvious facts that you're not supposed to dwell upon, all right, ties to blood and soil, noticing group differences, uh, arguing about uh, immigration, uh, whether you know civil rights are causing us more harm than good. That's considered out of bounds for traditional discourse. So for right-wing talk show hosts, these elite standards of discourse have become a shelter for those whose 
claims cannot withstand the scrutiny of common sense, reasoning, and experience. So elite course of balance and objectivity merely encourage an apathetic public sphere and allow the political claims of vocal special interests to exercise disproportionate influence as against the claims of the majority. So you get a style that is confrontational, aggressive, and highly passionate, and it's politically valuable because it shakes people free from an elite-induced apathy and ignorance, an apathy and ignorance induced by, say, pharmaceutical consumption, marijuana consumption, uh, mainstream media consumption, right? It's left the people apathetic and ignorant, but we in the right-wing populist discourse, we're going to wake people up by being passionate, aggressive, and confrontational. So for right-wing populists, the elite commitment to polite, non-confrontational, politically correct discourse stands in the way of open, honest, and frank discussions of social problems and how they should be addressed. So a willingness to violate PC conventions of cultural sensitivity becomes a sign of lucid and honest speech as well as a sign of courage. And so usually right-wing hosts will congratulate themselves on their style on having the fortitude to challenge political correctness in defense of the people's interests. And right-wing hosts will typically boast that their high ratings are a tribute to their bold, aggressive, and courageous style. So the populist genius of right-wing political discourse in talk radio and live streaming comes from its ability to portray the logic of commercialism, the number of views, right, treating political talk as entertainment, as a politically virtuous invigoration of democracy. So the discipline imposed by the need to entertain keeps political speech honest, accessible, and authentic, and it counteracts the mainstream media's counterproductive pursuit of diversity, balance, objectivity, and moderation. So you give the people what they want, and this does not lead to a decline of the public discourse, but it invigorates it, creates a democratic rebirth. Market logic, logic of commercial culture is recast as an instrument of political democracy. It's the means by which the people are put back in charge of the public sphere. So the host will typically remind the audience that by serving their needs and their interests is his top priority and that all interventions he makes to discipline and shape speech on his show are all designed to make the discussion more palatable to them. And this Jimmy Dore, Tucker Carlson discussion very much fits within this framework of epistemological populism. We need to go full fascist to end crime. You seem to have laws like, hey, don't steal. Stealing doesn't help anybody. That's bullshit. No poor people benefit from stealing. There are, no poor, there are stores in poor people's areas. You ever been to one? Like, and, you know, in the, so it's not helping. They're only doing it to hurt. Why are they doing that? Because they plan on making a change in the way that we're governed. You can yeah. order stuff at Amazon. See yeah. what pain it is to, exactly. to go So that was the craziest well, thing. Well, there's about, that. The, the craziest thing about COVID, as I picked up on quickly, was that I couldn't go to a local sporting goods store on the corner of my block and buy a catcher's mitt for my nephew for Christmas, but I could order one, for, which only has one person working in it, but I could order one from Amazon, which has thousands of people working inside a giant warehouse. Exactly. And, they, and that was supposed to be for our safety, which, again, if you just look at it on the face, it doesn't make any logical sense. So you know you're being lied to, and yeah. you know they're trying to change the economy. And then what happened with the truckers? And by the way, the truckers were vaccinated at a higher rate than the general population. They weren't protesting medicine. They were protesting bullshit authoritarianism, and they were right. And so when I looked at the truckers, I saw white truckers, I saw black truckers, I saw native truckers, I saw Indian truckers with the beard 
appeared in the thing. And then when I saw that, I was like, a white yeah, supremacists, a lot of white supremacists. And um, <laughs> and then, of course, they called them Nazis. And then they shut down their bank accounts, uh, which was proven to be garbage. That's what they want. That's why they want to move. saluted a Nazi later. And then they salute. <laughs> then they John literally, the whole, they all saluted a Nazi in their parliament. And uh, and then they blamed it on, on Russia. I swear <laughs> to God, that's what they did. So... Uh, this digital currency that's coming, right? So they wanted to get you. Now I go to places they don't even take cash, which I don't know if you look at the dollar no. bill. It says this is for all debts, private and public. And if you go to a store, they don't take cash. Yes. That is not a good thing, right? No, it's a terrifying thing. And look, this is the way you know. You... I mean, is it really terrifying that uh, there there are some stores that don't take cash? I mean, in Australia, most places don't take cash. I think. 80%, 90% of transactions are done via a card. I, I didn't find it terrifying. But then I'm an honest, law-abiding citizen, man. Always imagine when you're a kid and you're reading about the Second World War and the rise of fascism in Europe, you always imagined that it would look like the pictures you saw. There would be guys in tight uniforms goose-stepping through your town. But of course, it's America, so nothing happens that way. Nothing is obvious. Everything is the seduction that you buy into voluntarily because it's easy, it's convenient. And what you don't realize is that you're making a bargain, and for that ease and convenience, you're trading your freedom and your individuality and your privacy and all the things that make you human. And so cash is exactly the same way. It's not like they've banned ATM machines. They're just slowly making it much much less common for people to use cash, much less convenient for people to use cash. And in four or five years, like no one will use cash. And so at that point, you have, in effect, digital currency. It's, it's just kind of that simple because, by the way, MBNA or whoever issues your stupid credit card is every bit as tied in to the – permanent bureaucracy in Washington and subject to its demands as any federal agency. So after 9-11, or 9-11, excuse me, after January 6th, they immediately got the credit card companies to send them, the FBI, you know, the transaction records of anyone who went to a gun store in, you know, the 15 zip codes around D.C. for the week preceding and following January 6th. So, and they complied without telling the customer. So they're selling your, giving your private information to a law enforcement agency without telling you. Now, that used to be illegal. Man, they're, they're after you, but at least here... With epistemological populism, we're fighting for you. We're on, we're on your side. Now, I know you're pretty ticked at me. I've gone one hour, 33 minutes into this show, and I haven't played any insights from Decoding the Gurus. Right, Matthew Brown, Chris Kavanaugh. Here they are decoding an academic paper which discusses whether we are morally declining as each generation goes by. Like people like Scott Alexander brought up where, yeah, but like people look at the actual crime rates you know, in the 1970s or whatever, and then look at this like static pattern and they were wrong, right? Like the crime rates did go up or in the 1990s, whenever that crime wave was in America. Um, and, and that's all people's sentiment doesn't necessarily track the objective rea rea reality and also what morality entails. There is not agreement, right? Because if you're a religious person that think like adherence to Christian doctrine is what morality should involve or mm -hmm. sex before marriage is, a big problem, then you could find statistics showing there has been uh, yeah. moral decline according to your subjective standards. But like mastering and stuff, they, like I think part of the reason he annoyed people was he read a blog post and he he essentially says lots of people are going to say, "Well, what do you mean by morality?" Lots of people, and he's like, "Just hold on, shut up." Like everybody basically knows what you know the general <laughs> things that we agree. So like that's what we mean. Just you know, if you ask random people, they'll talk about kindness and stuff. So yes, there's all these exceptions, but like that's for philosophers. <laughs> I'm just talking about the general agreed, which obviously annoyed a whole bunch of people, including well, like. Well, it annoys um, me too, probably for different reasons, because it's so naive the idea that people have a well, good sense that. of of an objective level objective level of niceness even right no it's but I, I think relative. it's not that he's more saying we can like there are all these differences yes but 
there's a core thing. Like if you ask uh, just random people, what is morally good behavior? There is a, a consistent bunch of stuff that you'll get. Oh, and yeah. it'll, it'll revolve yeah. around people, being nice yeah, to other people. people, people be nice, considerate, polite, yeah. respectful. Yada, but yada, yada. Uh, the the bad wizards reference, you know, things about like uh, moral foundations varying yeah. and this kind of thing and saying you can't assume that. that but I actually think you no, can. No, but I mean, but I, <laughs> my objection is different. Like it's that I think it's easy to go from that. But oh, yeah, people do have a general sense of, of, of how, I guess, pleasant other people are around. Or how, oh, right, right. Whatever, you, right. But, you, but my you're talking about right, well, is, my problem is is is, a relative, is how subjective those assessments are. And like a perfect example is how academics feel like they're totally downtrodden, oppressed, overworked, under so much stress. Like everything is absolutely the worst thing you can possibly imagine. And there's a you know there's a trope, there's a joke where academics leave academia in a huff and then they get a job like in the private sector, <laughs> just like Ghostbusters, where they have to produce results. And they realize that actually it wasn't that bad, right? They're, yeah. It, so, you know, I mean, this is not a dig against academics. Well, it is. But mainly I'm saying that people's perceptions of things like that are totally relative. If you've, if you've worked all your life in academic settings, you will be sensitive to certain things. You'll appreciate other things. But, but that experience sets the boundaries for your evaluations. Um, you don't have an objective sense of how well you're being treated, how nice people are to you, how considerate your boss is and stuff like that. Because you haven't had experience working in the construction industry or picking fruit or being an accountant or a dozen other, a million other different things. That's my yeah. point, Chris. I'm sorry. I'm like a broken. No, but yeah, I, I come, so I agree with that. There is, there's a, their issue, which they got in trouble for is that like, they, they, they're just talking about perceptions and like how closely, like we know for all sorts of stuff that people's perceptions suck. Like they're even talking about it in this, hmm. this data, right? Like that. So you can't asking people like you're saying on the one hand that they perceive a moral decline and we can't trust this. And the, the, the poll that you're judging this by, is there a, a subjective assessment of the current morality of their society, right? Which presumably suffers from the same problem that they're not necessarily accurate um, in their assessment, right? So you, hmm. you could instead look at objective measures and then you would run into all the problems that people will bring up with Pinker or Hans Rosling, right? And they'll object to, well, you're cherry picking these ones and you're not, but like, but the overall thing, which I think we both agree is that <laughs> you can't, it actually requires cherry picking in the opposite direction to argue that things are consistently getting worse. Like on most metrics, uh, the world is uh, improving, uh, but but there yeah. are exceptions. The, the, the easy way, I mean, I agree that the cherry picking is an issue because you know, everyone will cherry pick their statistics. If, 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 if Pinker you know, cherry picks these ones and somebody else will focus on um, global warming or something like that, right? Um, so, you know, you have to focus on the most generic, the most overarching type measures you can you can you can find, um, because then there's very little scope for cherry picking. And um, I think health-related quality of life um, population representative is is an example of that kind of thing. Um, so so don't don't get into the little details of are people you know uh, are people having more extra extramarital sex or has the number of muggings in New York gone up or down? You know, there's it, it, it's a rich tapestry. There's, it's a complex world out there, but if you focus on those overarching statistics, then you actually get an answer to that question. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's a point. Well, well presented, Matt. I, I yes. I'm not going to argue with you. Uh, mm. And the last set of studies, they were kind of addressing. Um, how did they frame it? Uh, was this part of why do people perceive moral decline? Yes, it was. So they then um, went and conducted a bunch of studies um, that they wanted to look do people like to what extent that people attribute moral decline 
to like the general population uh, and the people in their personal world, uh, or also the whether they localize it around their particular birth, like the period that they're alive in, um, or they generalize it, you know, across. And this is all MTurk data, but the basic answers are uh, like straightforward and represented um, in this. Uh, where is it? Yeah, this, these two sets of graphs. So one is that basically people think that people in general uh, are getting worse, that the, the, the generations are getting worse, like the younger people are morally worse than the uh, older people, but not amongst their personal world, like the people that they interact with. Uh, they're actually getting slightly better, right? Like uh, it would be the indicator, um, even though there is still the, the like age effect, right? So they still perceive that. Um, and they also perceive that the looking at like 40 years before the participant was born and 20 years before the participant was born, um, you don't really see substantial uh, like differences between those periods. But once you get to the current year, there is a relative decline, right? From mm -hmm. those readings. So it's, it's kind of egocentric, right? People think their groups are potentially not declining and that there's something special about the current era that they're living in, right? Um, mm -hmm. So that's the general point that they want to make. And these have all the issues with like MTurk studies and the various ways that they measured it. But I also don't find this that hard to believe that like people are inconsistent <laughs> this matter and that they might like that society is going to hand the like hell in a handbasket, right. but mm. my, yeah, my like general community is not that bad, but you know, in general, yeah. things are getting worse. Right. And it, and it could be right. could also be accurate that you live in some community, which has been spared the decline of morality, yeah, but, but, but not everybody could be, cause that wouldn't make sense. Right. So <laughs> yeah, right. I, I live in West Los Angeles and I live primarily among Orthodox Jews and most Orthodox Jews are virgins when they get married. Right. Even though they're living in, highly decadent cities, right, they're able to preserve a traditional moral way of life. It's extraordinary that Orthodox Jews living in West Los Angeles in on the upper west side of Manhattan, right, in, you know, Palm Beach, Florida, still majority of them still virgins when they get married. Yeah. It, is, it is an inconsistency. I mean, you know, it's like everyone believes that they're a better than average driver. If you, you know, consider um, this data to be uh, representative of the general population. Sure, like, but I, I doubt that they're sampling particularly harmonious communities. <laughs> no, they're, they're M-tuckers. <laughs> they're M-tuckers. <laughs> they're, they're, they're bottom dwellers. They're bottom feeders. <laughs> Sorry, I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, so, yeah, I mean, for me, Chris, the interesting thing about that plot was that, again, that sort of little sharp decline, right? So to the present. So the key... The, the key thing is is that things are pretty much okay until you turn 20. Right. Well, when, when you look back, all right, uh, if you suffer from euphoric recall, all right, you recall the euphoric moments of the, your interactions with the opposite sex. You don't necessarily recall as clearly and dramatically and as intensely all the sturm and drang and the, the upset and the downside. So uh, our memories tend to be filtered. So that we tend to have, you know, more more positive memories, generally speaking, than the pain that we experienced. And then, I, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, that, <laughs> uh, twenty I mean, years. I get that. I, I get that. And I think I think most people who are over forty do too. Um, yeah, but really, I, you're really thinking about yourself. You know what I mean? You're extrapolating the state of your physical and mental um, situation to society. I think part of the reason that I like overall 
I think a lot of the study is just documenting very obvious things. Is like all the religious material that I've looked at, Matt. They they all pretty much all talk about how we're now living in the end of times or the the you know the fallen era. Like we're in Mapo. We we can't yeah. reach enlightenment because we've lost so much of the you know the good stuff that the Buddhas were teaching or whatever. Like this fallen world is is a really common narrative. So like it doesn't have to be about politics. It can be about religion. It can be about whatever. But in almost all historical circumstances I look at, there is that narrative that there was an ancestral golden era of gods and, you know, uh, and we need to restore it. Like, and yeah. we all know it's through the Tang dynasty or MAGA. Like, that's that's what is yeah. very common. And people... Yeah, there, there was the, the fall from grace. There was the fall from grace. And, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. The I'm, best can was... was Genghis. <laughs> or Genghis, right? <laughs> like the... the yeah. uh, it's Kublai and all them. They're just peel limitations. So, you know, like, uh, yeah. there's, I, I don't Chris, find... Um, the McDonald's Whopper. No, not the Whopper. That, sorry. I was going to say Hungry Jacks, but then I remembered it's Burger King in the United States. The Burger King Whopper was better when I was 20 years old. And I think has decreased substantially just in how it tastes. And it seems... I mean, smaller. just look at the, the existence of prank streamers or nuisance streamers, right? The, <laughs> that, that, that in itself is surely an indication That should be the key of, metric. Yeah, Forget like, health-loaded quality of life. Just how yeah. many goddamn TikTokers are there? Or the number of secular gurus <laughs> that you encounter in your daily life. But then they say, I mean, but there actually forward. are well-documented problems like climate change and terrorism to racial injustice, and that they like the government will be spending time trying to reverse reverse this imaginary trend instead of dealing. But like <laughs> you know, Pamela made this point saying like it's not like the government has a program for like you know investing billions of dollars to improve the general morality of the population, and it's yeah. not spending it on climate change or whatever like i i just that's kind of the it's a very cutesy like um uh, like yeah it, you know it. it's trying to say what's the implication of this well this is very important because if we if we don't combat this illusion people will you know prioritize the wrong policies and I, I don't think that's the case like they'll just prioritize the wrong policies all the time anyway for a whole bunch of different reasons um like regardless well, look i i i read that bit i remember reading that bit and um I, I guess I had a more charitable interpretation of what they meant, which is I, I kind of agree with them that I think it is it is a problem, right? That that people have well, that people are wrong. Perception yes, of, <laughs> yes, the people are wrong. But the the implication of this, right, is that like when you believe that things are going to hell in a handbasket, then what it does is it makes you more open to Populists. to radical changes, populism, basically, to to make to and to do quite yeah, um, kind of severe severe things, right, to address this. This perception of encroaching or incoming disaster, right? Disaster, right? So, and you know, Trump's campaign is totally mm. based on that. And if you look at you know, left and right wing populists, communists, type that, people, yeah. they'll, they'll they have the same rationale for why we have to do things, which 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 to a normal person might seem like a bad idea. But if if you come to if you have this bias towards thinking that well, we just have to do something radical right now, otherwise, you know, then yeah, yeah, we're in a we're in an era of particular. Okay, uh, John Mearsheimer just went on Unheard again. So, Hello um, and welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. Professor John Mearsheimer is one of the most famous international relations scholars in the world. He's known as being part of the realist school. We'll talk about what that means. We did a long and detailed discussion with him about Ukraine and his somewhat controversial views back last summer. And I'm delighted to say he is back on the channel now, joining us from Chicago to talk about Israel as well as Ukraine. Professor Mearsheimer, welcome. I'm glad to be here, Freddie. Thank you for inviting me back. So I'm going to come straight out with it and express a, a hesitation, Professor, because I've read your piece this morning about Israel. And 
I suppose what I notice is that where you were so cool-headed, hard-nosed and realistic about the Ukraine-Russia great power struggle, the tone is very much more moralistic and more, I guess, outraged when talking about Israeli actions in Gaza. Do you, do you feel differently about this conflict? Oh, I just used my critical faculties to analyze what the Israelis are doing in Gaza in the same way that I analyze the, uh, uh, the Ukraine war. Uh, I think there's an important moral dimension to what is happening in the Israeli-Hamas uh, conflict that needed to be discussed. And uh, I laid out my views in the Substack piece very clearly. But I didn't think that I was up on my high horse and I was preaching or anything of that sort. No, as I tried to make clear in the piece, I just want to be on the record with regard to what the Israelis are doing uh, in Gaza so that at some point down the road, when historians look back at what's happening, uh, it's clear where I stood on the issue. I suppose if there are critics, if there are Mearsheimer critics watching, and they are plenty in number, so uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll get a few, they might say, where was the same level of outrage about the Russian invasion into Ukraine? The details of the horrors there, there were, if one was looking for uh, humanitarian horrors, there were plenty of them in that example. Also, finding voices saying completely outrageous, inhuman things that was also possible in that conflict. And then in this one, you could do the similar job, in fact, probably more effective on the Hamas side of this conflict. You know, there are the, the horrors there, uh, what took place on October the 7th, and some of the statements you can find from supporters of that side are also awful to comprehend and to, to witness. But you, you don't seem to be focusing on them so much. So if, if someone is criticizing you from, from that basis, how would you respond? You're basically saying that I can't focus on Israel and criticize Israel behave, Israel's behavior in Gaza because of atrocities that were committed in Ukraine and because of what happened on October 7th. Isn't that the case? I'm looking for a, a consistency of approach across these. I, I, and I guess I, I don't have to provide a consistency of approach. I'm focusing on what the Israelis are doing in Gaza. I'm not comparing what happened in Gaza with what happened on October 7th and what's happened in Ukraine. Those are different issues. You could write a piece like that. But the, I'm sorry, there's nothing wrong with me analyzing what the Israelis are doing in Gaza, period. Okay, so let's get theoretical then, in a way, because you're so famous for this realist school, and exactly what that means, it would be great to elucidate for our, our viewers. But how does the, the realist principle apply to the Israel-Gaza conflict? I mean, could you say, for example, that Israel, if it's going to act rationally in its own interests, needed to respond dramatically to the atrocities on October the 7th. And that, in a way, could be seen as quite a realist response. I'm not criticizing the Israelis for responding to what Hamas did on October 7th. Of course, the Israelis were going to respond. What I'm criticizing is how they responded. And my argument is that it made no sense militarily uh, to launch a campaign where they're basically massacring huge numbers of Palestinians and starving Palestinians. Uh, there's no military utility to this. And from a moral point of view, it's abhorrent. Had you been in charge or had, had Israel been listening to your advice, what, what would you have recommended as a, a better response? Well, I think there's no question that the Israelis, from their perspective, had to respond to what uh, Hamas did on October 7th. But I don't think that they had to respond the way they have responded. And I think that their response could have been much more selective and little emphasis should have been placed on punishing the civilian population. The emphasis should have been on going after Hamas, not going to great lengths to punish the Palestinian uh, population in ways that we are watching now. And so 
Right, so we, we've got statistics coming out of Gaza, presumably from Hamas-controlled organizations, saying that uh, 1% of the Gazan population has been killed in this conflict. So 1% of the American population would be 3.6 million people. So if, if indeed 1% of the Gazan population is being killed in this conflict, it's horrifying. Okay, that will do it for me for now. Take care. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.